last Sunday I was talking to Linda Tittle. She, um, if you know Linda, she's been around about 10 years. She's in a wheelchair outside the, the sanctuary, and she was just very sad. So Christy and I went by to see her last Sunday afternoon, had a great <clears throat> visit. And I did ask her if I could talk a little bit about our visit, and she said, um, this week? I said, yeah. She goes, that'll be fine. I won't be there. So <laughs> she said, not next week, because I'll be there. And um, Linda, her, her, um, she started coming to River about 10 years ago. Her husband, Moses, came probably 10 years before that, and uh, Moses died about 10 years ago. I love that man. Miss him a lot. But he had an, ac- he had an accident to put him in a wheelchair, and if you remember Moses, he was an honorary guy. He always had a, he would wear a toothpick right here. And he would, he'd pull it out to talk to you and put it back. And when I would go visit Moses, um, you remember, Jim, used to go see those, those guys. When I'd go visit Moses, Linda wasn't a believer yet, and she would just glare at me across the room. I'm like, oh, she's really scary. And, um, and then Moses, after he died, she came to Christ. And now you go see Linda, and she's, the sweetest thing. Jesus has just transformed her life. And uh, he has not, however, given her all of her earthly dreams. She is not wealthy. She's not healthy like most would measure health. She's in a wheelchair. She lives in near constant pain. And she's often sad because her life is difficult, but she's hopeful and her faith is stable. And last Sunday when we talked about how she was somebody be with Jesus, and there was a picture of Moses, her, her Moses on the wall, and, and I said, um, how long were you and Moses married? And she said, too long. When she, she was just being honorary. They did love each other. But when I said, someday you'll be with Jesus and Moses, and she, her hand just spontaneously went up in praise. She told Jim Lewis this week that she couldn't wait for her new body so she could fall at the feet of Jesus. Now, if you hear something like that in a movie or you read in a book, you go, okay, sounds a little bit cheesy. With Linda, it's believable and super challenging. Research reveals that more and more American churchgoers believe in some form of prosperity gospel. This is a kind of transactional relationship with God where if you give away more money, he'll give you more money. Or if you have enough faith, you'll get what you want from God. Gold medals, make winning kicks in football games. You know, you'll get more health and not have to suffer physically. And besides being a potentially heretical view, and it is heretical if you really actually believe you can earn God's favor... It's also perfectly designed to make people less Christ-like and less resilient. It's the opposite of what Peter said. Don't be surprised at the painful trial. You're suffering as if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. This is, I'm completely surprised at the painful trial because it's not what I expected. So what exactly has God promised and what can we expect from him and what does he expect from us? So we're going to end, we're going to end for 2 Peter today. I'm really sad to be leaving Peter's letters. I've really enjoyed it and been challenged by him. And before we finish the last passage, we're going to go back a little bit and look at a couple of verses. So 2 Peter 3, 11 to 13, then we'll move into the last passage. And there, Peter, if you were here last week, he talked about how the, the cosmos is going to come to an end. It's going to, there's going to be a recreation. And since this is true, what sort of people ought you to be in your lives? Waiting for, the, waiting for and hastening, he said, the coming of the day of the Lord. So Richard Dawkins is one of a group of men who has been called the New Atheists. I don't know if they call him that anymore because this is like at least 30 years old. But Dawkins confesses that he does not know what caused the origin of the universe, but he believes, and these are his words, he believes, and that's a statement of faith, that one day there'll be a naturalistic explanation of it. 
naturalistic versus supernaturalistic. He said in a debate with John Lennox that he does not need to resort to magic to explain the universe. And magic is his sarcastic appraisal of belief in God as cosmos creator. After the debate, he responded to a reporter's question by saying he believed, using that word again, that the universe could just have appeared from nothing. Magic, the reporter replied. So he disregards creation as magic, but he believes the universe could have magically popped into existence, everything from nothing. Another of this group, Chris Hitchens, died of cancer in 2011. He's famous for his philosophical principle called Hitchens' razor. A razor is just a a philosophical statement that sort of carves away everything. And his statement was, his principle was, what can be asserted without evidence can also be dismissed without evidence. And he puts Christian faith in this category of no evidence. So you don't even really need to try to debate Christians because you can dismiss them without evidence. So if we apply one atheist principle to another atheist statement of faith, they cancel each other out. Dawkins made this statement without evidence that the universe could have popped into existence. Hitchens' principle says his view can be dismissed without evidence. Now, Christians don't assert their faith is without evidence. At least most don't. Peter certainly doesn't. Peter was an eyewitness to the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is conclusive evidence. He had experienced personal transformation through his relationship with Christ, also important evidence. He had been a part of manifold miracles, the birth and spread of the church, faith in the face of suffering, further compelling evidence from all different angles. And Peter tells us quite reasonably, in line with these and other facts, that what God has begun, the cosmos, he will bring to a conclusion, and he's now directing this cosmos for his own purposes. And the evidence for this is conclusive. Therefore, he says, we should be people who think and live in line with divine purpose in our lives. Current history has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's purposeful, it's not random, and meaningless. In fact, in God's sovereign plan, somehow he's included human choices, even how the, end of the, the timing of the end works out. He doesn't say much about this. He just mentions in briefly how we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord. And we don't get a lot of details about how this works, other than it's somehow tied to world evangelism. Jesus addressed this in Mark 13. But our final destiny as redeemed people of God is that we live in a new heaven, new earth, with resurrected bodies living in a physical cosmos. And no one's going to be able to map out in detail what's going to happen at the end. Now just consider the fact that in spite of all the Old Testament evidence, all the Old Testament prophecies, I mean, nobody got the details of the first coming just right. We do know that those who look forward to the Lord's first coming found their lives shaped by hope and faithful actions. And the same is true for those who look to his return. Okay, let's finish Peter's second letter, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So three times in three verses, 12, 13, 14, Peter uses the word waiting, or more literally watching for. And he learned this from the master, from Jesus, who repeatedly told his friends to watch, which means to live in a state of ongoing readiness. On September 11, 2001, military bases went to force protection Delta, the highest level of alert possible. So there's normal, and then there's Alpha, Beta, Charlie, Delta. And then over time, this is McConnell Air Force Base, and on that morning, my commander told me to get to the base. It took me an hour to get a quarter mile. That's how they were vetting everybody very, very carefully. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Over time, the threat level was lowered, but it remained elevated above normal for many years. And what this means is that when airmen pull up to a gate that 
had gone from Delta to Bravo, which is still level three, elevated, what happens eventually? What does is, what is Bravo become? Bravo becomes normal. And so instead of being elevated, it gets de-escalated. The intended warning stops working. It loses its effect because human nature is adaptive, and this can be good or bad. It can be bad if we let down our guard when we should remain vigilant. And Peter knows that just a couple of decades after the Lord's resurrection and ascension, the church wasn't living with this heightened sense of imminent return anymore. And so he's not trying to raise the fear threat level, but the faithfulness alert level. Waiting or watching is living in an active state of readiness. And for the second time, he uses the phrase, make every effort or be diligent. Do the work to live in a state of readiness so you can be found by him when he returns without spot or blemish. And you might recognize that phrase because it's the third time he's used it. In the first letter, he wrote that Jesus was without blemish or spot. And in chapter 2 of the second letter, he wrote that the false teachers were spots and blemishes in the church. And now we're to be found by the spotless Jesus without spot ourself. The Lord was morally perfect. He was spotless. He was sinless. The false teachers denied Christ. They were moral blemishes that they tried to blend into the church. And so again, a right perspective on the end has moral implications. And Peter's casting vision for his readers to put their hope in Jesus in a way that has practical implications. Be found by him when he returns, becoming more like him in his moral perfection. Now, of course, we're not going to become moral, morally perfect, but we are to train to be like him. Though we're not going to experience moral perfection, there should be constant, consistent moral direction in our lives. So notice that we're to be found at peace. Again, proper attention to the reality of the end ought to increase, not decrease, personal peace. So if you're planning, you're thinking, you're reading about the end of time or even the end of your life decreases your peace, you need a different strategy. Verse 15, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, which he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. A couple of things Peter says about his friend's letters. First, God gave Paul wisdom to write them. They're not human origin, merely human origin. They're scripture. Really important point for a theology of the New Testament. And then second, even Peter finds some of them hard to understand. Not impossible, but hard. This is super encouraging. As you read through Paul's letters, if you're thinking these are hard, Peter would agree. We shouldn't be surprised that it takes work to understand and apply the Bible. It's a grown-up book about real world. And then ignorant, literally uninstructed and unstable people twist them to their own destruction. And he's referring probably to Paul's teaching on justification by faith, which was twisted to mean that once we're justified by Christ, you can do whatever you want. Because the more you sin, the better. The more you sin, the more grace you get. And they twist it because Paul did teach that Christian, the Christian is free by grace from earning God's favor, but this grace frees us from sin's bondage. So grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And then verse, he, he describes those who are ignorant or uninformed as unstable. They've twisted the scriptures and this is going to make them unstable. And if they don't repent, it'll lead to their destruction. When I was a student at Wichita State, I had a professor who didn't understand scripture, but yet he would present himself as an expert. And he would twist key passages to make light of the Bible. I was 19. I, I was young in the faith. I knew he was wrong. I just didn't know how to respond other than he's wrong. And now looking back, I 
I remember his arguments, and I know really he was shallow and uninformed, and his approach to the Bible was actually pretty silly, and his, his attacks could be easily responded to. But there's no shortage of examples of unstable people distorting Scripture online, in the halls of your school, in your workplace, and they can get laughs, they can get online likes, but this is very serious stuff. And they're further destabilizing their own lives, and if they don't repent, then the end will be destruction. Later on, during my college years, a couple years later, I had a friend in a group of friends. He was mocking biblical morality with his words and then what he was doing. It was not good. And by then, I did know better how to answer this kind of folly, and I challenged him. He was my friend, and I warned him. And I shared the gospel with him, and he eventually came to Christ. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So once more, Peter calls in beloved or dear friends. And we've been hearing in both of Peter's letters the heart of a pastor. He's spoken with clarity and with bluntness because he loves them. He wants what's best for them. He knows from experience that no one has permanent immunity from error. And if you think otherwise... That pride can make you unsafe. So Peter was arrogant at one point in his life, and he failed. He denied the Lord. Later on, when he should have known better, he was post-resurrection. He, along with Barnabas, got caught up in theological and practical error, and Paul had to rebuke him. He talks about this in Galatians 2. If it happened to Peter, it can happen to anyone. So take care you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. He's not advocating for us to live in immobilizing fear, but to live in a state of alertness. And this is really hard to do. It's hard to balance living with a warfare mentality, but not living with that edge all the time. I read an article last week about how the Ukrainian people are trying to adapt to life in a state of war. And the article had all these pictures of weddings and people going to work, full restaurants, high school graduations, and bombed out buildings and other signs of war, like this lady going about her business, walking by uh, sandbags, which you see in combat zones. And they have to balance the tension of war in everyday life. They've all lost somebody they know. They have people that are on the front lines, which aren't very far away. They live in a state of readiness, curfew, blackouts, bomb shelters, but they have to live. you got to live, because life is more than just war. And we have something similar in our own remote warfighting capabilities. A pilot can remotely fly a plane from Creech Air Force Base in Las Vegas into combat in the Middle East, kill an enemy combatant in near real time, then go to his kid's soccer game. And this can be hard for a human mind to make sense out of. How do you live a normal life while participating in a war? And so we learn to compartmentalize, which again can be healthy adaptive behavior. The problem comes when we either lose a sense of everyday life, it all is war, or we lose a sense of the war. How do you keep that balance? And some people, in their attempts to stay engaged in a spiritual war, they become nothing but angry, loud, belligerent combatants. Or they just become fearful that they're just going to die. They lose their sense of the mission of God in the world. They forget that the war is not the focus. You have to remember you're in a war, but the war is not the focus. Christ, the gospel is. Some forget there's a spiritual war at all. They become more susceptible to error. They fall prey to the enemy's information warfare. And, in all, and I'm going to talk about war, sorry, but that's the point of this. this is, Peter is waging an information warfare fight against information warfare. In all wars, truth is a vital resource, and deception is an important strategy to, to defeat your enemies. So we talk about information warfare a lot now. 
the fight in the cybersphere, looking for dominance in the information domain. And information is defined as the facts learned or provided about something or someone. Pretty simple. Facts equal the truth. And the spiritual battle has always been primarily about information warfare. In Genesis, we see Satan through the serpent twisting God's words and weaponizing lies against the first couple. Jesus replied to Satan's information warfare attack in the desert with truth from God's word. And Peter's doing information warfare in this letter. He's fighting for truth against weaponized lies because he knows truth believes, truth believed leads to truth lived. Lies believed leads to lies lived. And the consequences are devastating. He's addressed this over and over in his letter. And the resulting of believing what's not true is initial instability and if not repented of, eventually destruction. And so he ends his letter with a counterattack. A friend of mine was a commander of what's called the Network Operations Security Center, the NOSC, and they defend the Air National Guard network against attack. And he once described his job as a mile-long chain-link fence with a plastic cup stuff in every opening. And he said, for us to succeed, we have to keep every cup and every hole every minute of every day. For the enemy to succeed, they, they can poke one, hole, one cup out one time, one day. And I said, that sounds really depressing, impossible. But that's the nature of only playing defense. Imagine a sport where one team could only play defense and scoring was only possible for the offense, and, when, and the game is played until somebody scores. Guess what? The team playing defense will lose 100% of the time. And so Peter doesn't just give a defensive strategy. He's given that. The scripture is full of, here's defensive strategies, but he also gives an offensive one. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. This is shorthand here at the end of the letter for what he, he gave us in longhand back earlier. This is about a growth focus. We're not to be passive observers biting our nails, wondering what's going to happen to us, hoping it turns out okay. We're supposed to take action to grow. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, he wrote, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. So what is the very reason? Go right before that. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Now the background for that Greek word used for add, make every reason to add, came from the world of arts. And they were in, in Athenian drama festivals would go on for days. They were very expensive affairs, like modern movies with multiple producers sharing expenses. If you, if you watch movies now, it used to be, you know, there's a producer or a, a production company. Now there's like tons of them. In fact, The Butler, a 2013 movie, 41 producers for one movie. So they're sharing these expenses. And so these drama festivals would have the writers would share some expense, the state would share some expense, and then wealthy individuals, benefactors, would share some of the expenses. And the name for these wealthy benefactors is where the Greek word for ad used here comes from. It, it came to mean generous and costly cooperation. Now, it's largely lost in translation, but Peter's readers would have understood when 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 Peter used this word, add to your faith, they would have understood he's talking about costly cooperation with God in your own spiritual formation. You don't trust God by setting the cruise control of your life. You've been given in the gospel all you need. It's a gift. You've been given salvation. You've been given grace, power. 
And now you need to give costly cooperation, full effort, not for salvation, but to train to become more like Christ. So let's take a run at these costly additions. First, add to your faith virtue. This means excellence or living in line with your purpose. So if you think about what does it mean to be excellent, like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, what was excellent? Not that. So the excellence of a knife is to cut. That's an excellent knife. It can cut. The excellence of a horse is to run. So what's the excellence of a man or a woman? Well, to become like Christ. He is a human of absolute excellence. So that's what virtue means here. Add knowledge. Pursuing Christ requires knowing him, knowing true truth about him. This takes effort. It doesn't just happen. Add to that self-control, not being controlled by passions like the ones Peter said were, being, were destroying their own lives. And self-control here is not just food or sex. It's self-control in all the passions we experience, passion for control and power and revenge. We surrender them to Christ. So the idea of self-control as the scripture is that Jesus is my leader and I'm the leader of me. He's the boss of me and I'm the boss of me. There's, he's, he's, our, he's our Lord and we are to Lord over our passions. And there's no growth, no progress without self-control. And what's interesting in the scripture is that self-control is both a human choice in this verse and it's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So that's that great and powerful cooperation, us and God. Add endurance, long-term faithfulness through adversity of all kinds. Endurance. Not short bursts of emotion and energy, but long endurance. There are no shortcuts. When Christy and I lived in Fort Worth, I knew a guy who could lift incredible amounts of weights. His muscles were massive. And one day I walked into the gym that he owned, and he was in a wheelchair, both legs and casts, hip to ankle. And he had, I said, what happened to him? And he, and, and he said, well, he shattered both knees attempting to do a heavy squat. He had so much weight on, both of his knees exploded. And he was never the same. So he had showy muscles, but here's the backstory: Because of steroid use, his bone and ligaments weren't able to withstand the weight. So he had strength, but there was no foundation. He had tried to skip some steps, and it cost him. There's no getting around the need for endurance to reach maturity. And every time I have seen or read of someone trying to speed up or skip the process of endurance looking for the path of least resistance, it has always ended poorly for them. Add godliness, which here means reverence for God. As we grow close to him, as we know him as friend, we're not to treat him with too much familiarity. There's a tension here that must be kept, and we can keep it. He is friend, he is savior, but he is always and will be God, judge, ruler of heaven and earth. Add brotherly kindness. There is no Growing love for God without growing love for people. This is the best measurement for spiritual growth. You say, well, I measure my spiritual growth by how long I pray. No. How many scriptures I memorize? No. You measure spiritual growth by how are you treating the people right around you. That's how you know. And then add love or agape. And agape is a deliberate desire for the highest good of the one who is loved. So God, for God so loved the world, agape, that he gave. And all this is offensive, not merely defensive. And I don't mean as being offensive to people, but I mean as being proactive, taking decisive, consistent action. The merely defensive Christian is often negative in his life posture. That means he's known for what he's against. He's living his life trying not to be beaten rather than pursuing becoming like Christ. I watched some of this special on Florida State 
football and how the, the coach had won two national championships and he had a nervous breakdown over not winning a third in, in four years. And they, they had this, the best team in the, in the country, but they spent they, every single game, they were going into the game trying not to be beaten. And that's, that's by their, and they were having no fun in the process. So the one who's only playing defense rather than actively pursuing Christ is going to be known for what they're against. The Christian living in an offensive posture, proactive in pursuing Christ, is going to be known for what they're for. So how would you describe yourself? Or more importantly, how would the people you live with, work with, go to school with, online with, how would they describe you? If I were to ask them about you, could they quickly tell you everything you're against? Or could they quickly tell you everything that you're for? How are you known by them? Okay, now let's go back to verse 18 with the understanding there's a lot packed in this grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. These are not practically contentless words. This is actionable. We're not helpless against the riptides of current culture. We're not even helpless against the, the pull of our own passions. We have agency. God in his grace has granted it to us. So we decide if we remain faithful. God's already for it. He's already, he said, I'm already for it. I'm all for you becoming like Christ. I'm all for you being faithful. Now it just remains for us to be all for it as well. So back to our starting question. What can we expect from God and what does he expect from us? Can I expect a life of health and wealth? Well, if it's God's specific will for you, then yes. If not, then no. And eventually, you're going to die. If the Lord doesn't return your lifetime, you're going to die and you won't take your stuff with you. So can I expect a life of health and wealth? In the end, no. I mean, death is not health. And you don't take it with you. So in terms of material health and wealth, no, you can't expect that. That's not a, a promise you're going to take with you forever. Will things go my way if I go his way? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. Scripture does say, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. See, okay, see, he just said, if I delight myself in God, he'll give me what I want. But what did the Scripture say that you wanted there? What did it say? Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. So, He'll give you what you want when what you want is him. It doesn't mean I delight myself in you. Now give me everything that I really want. Can we guarantee the good choices of our children and our children's children by our good choices? So there's, a, there's a verse somewhere in the Bible that says, train up a child in the way it will go. Your choices can make it easier or harder for your children to choose God, but your choices won't remove theirs. It's not how God's designed the world to work. So what can I expect from God and what does he expect from me? It's a big question. And the answer has been unpacked in fuller fashion for the last two and a half years as we've gone through the New Testament letters. But in a nutshell, we can expect God to be faithful to his promises and God expects us to be faithful to him. His divine power has given us all we need for life and godliness. Therefore, you make every effort to add to your faith. And our, our faithfulness will not be perfect, but it'll be a settled faithfulness. To live faithfully in line with God's faithfulness requires ongoing balance. Again, the letters have demonstrated that. We have to do the work to maintain the balance. There's so many examples. Like take personal responsibility for your faith, but don't neglect community. There's no growth without it. You can't do it by yourself. Walking with Christ will in fact maximize a thriving life, but don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. Live faithfully in the time and place where God has put you. 1 Thessalonians 4 Make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to mind your own business. But then don't live merely for the here and now. 
We could go on and on, but you get the picture. Piano strings require tension to make music. Muscles require tension to maintain strength. Christian growth requires holding biblical truth in proper tension. You can expect faithfulness from God. He will keep every promise he's made. He must not be expected to keep promise that he's not in fact made. God expects faithfulness from you. He will give you the grace to be found faithful. He expects you to apply the grit to be found faithful. So one more tension as we close. For Peter, there's knowledge about Christ and there's knowledge of Christ. And we need both. If you're going to love somebody, you have to know facts about them. And as you act on those facts about them, you start knowing about them personally and interpersonally, head and heart. And so Peter's talked about knowledge about Christ, the facts of faith. And he's, talking, he's talked about knowledge of Christ and our relationship with him. And he ended his letter with this, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So imagine Peter, he's now this old guy, putting down his pen, sitting back and thinking about what he's just written. And this old guy thinking back to his first meeting with Jesus where he was this young, brash, suntan fisherman, thinking to the next three years he had with Jesus, the things he'd seen and heard. He starts thinking about his failures, his restoration. He thinks about how he saw this huddled group of people hiding out after the Lord's death and resurrection and now this emerging church standing against the mighty Roman Empire. And he had to be thinking, if only I knew then what I know now. I had all those days and hours with the glorious Lord of heaven and earth. Why didn't I ask him this? Why didn't I ask him that? I think about that with my grandpa even. Man, if I'd have... If I'd have known what I know now, what would I have asked him? But then Peter's like, I'll see him again, either in his return or at my death. And so knowing how human life works, I can speculate. The days for Peter, especially at this point in his life, as he was nearing being executed, they were like they are for most people, often long. Sometimes the days are long. Sometimes the days are short, but often the days are long. But strangely, the years for Peter were short. It's a quirk of how humans perceive time. And if you're younger and you say it doesn't work that way for me, well, just wait. (laughs) The quirk of how humans perceive time, long days, short years, short lives. My dad would say as he approached 90, I look in the mirror sometime and say, who is that guy and how did I get here so fast? (laughs) And Linda will soon, our friend Linda will soon be free from her suffering and her current physical limitations. But if you go see Linda today, she would tell you, I was there Friday, and um, she wouldn't mind me saying this, but I was, you know, the the nurse was giving her her pain pills. It doesn't feel soon for her today, but it, in fact, will be soon. And she will, in fact, have the opportunity to bow at the feet of Jesus someday. Now, just imagine this with me. Imagine if our faith were shaping our desires such that our grandest dream was her grandest dream. Her grandest dream is to fall at the feet of Jesus someday. Wouldn't that be something if that was our greatest dream? And how would that dream shape our expectations of God? How would they change our expectations of God? How would it shape our choices to live day to day with what God expects of us? Let's pray together. You pray and talk to God, and then the worship team is going to lead us in worship of God.